First, I wanted to thank you all for all your prayers and thoughts for my wife. I'm recording this 10 hours after they've removed her from intubation. She is doing fantastic. And uh, just thank you, everybody, for everything. I really appreciate the support, and I know she does as well. What you're in, we're in together. When you're buried in the snow. I do anything to change the weather It's okay to not be okay Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to a clip of Morning Dove by Corey Breath This folk pop artist currently based in Tip City is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our warming journalist, Paula Slice, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories... For the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Now, there have been books, plays, movies, TV shows, even comic books that have written about or referenced William Quantrill. Still, I'm willing to bet more than 150 years after he lived and died, most folks have never heard of him, not even in Ohio, the state that gave birth to him. If you're looking for someone to symbolize the difference between famous and infamous, look no further. William Quantrill was a household name in his day, but for all the wrong reasons. Many historians who have studied his life consider him to have been a psychopath who used the fog of the Civil War to satisfy his thirst for blood and violence a man with no connection to the South or slavery, who joined the Confederate cause and left in his wake not just dead soldiers, but hundreds of dead civilians, including women and children. He even inspired a generation of outlaws, including two men who joined his band of guerrillas, Frank and Jesse James. By the age of 27, Quantrill was dead shot down during an ambush by Union forces and buried in an unmarked grave. The history books don't challenge this. And yet, there are those who can't help but wonder. Because some 40 years after he was presumed to be properly good and dead, a cavalryman who knew Quantrill announced he had seen him in Canada after the war, even spent time chatting with him about his life after he'd fled the country. But before we get to his death, let me tell you about the life of William Clark Quantrill. He was born on July 31, 1837, in Canal Dover, to Thomas and Carolyn Quantrill. His dad had come from Maryland, his mom from Pennsylvania. They settled in Ohio and had 12 children, though a third of them died in infancy. William was their firstborn. Canal Dover is known today as simply Dover. It's next door to New Philadelphia, 
the capital seat of Tuscarawas County. And it shortened its name at the start of the 20th century. But in Quantrill's day, its name reflected the town's location along the Ohio and Erie Canal. I read mixed accounts of Quantrill's childhood. Some biographies focused on his intelligence. His father, Thomas, became superintendent of the public schools in Canal Dover and had an extensive book collection. So William was well-educated and well-read and followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a teacher himself by the age of 16. But his father was a tough guy. It was said he once went to kill a man who he felt had wronged him, and the man fought back with a hot poker and cracked Tom Quantrill's head, though both survived the encounter. Tom Quantrill's wrath wasn't just reserved for grown men. It was said he was also abusive to his children. And that may be why young William himself developed cruel tendencies at a young age. One account said Will would shoot pigs through the ears just to hear them squeal and nail snakes to trees. His complicated family life became more so in 1854 when his dad died of tuberculosis, leaving the family with a huge financial debt. Young Will kept food on the table using his hunting and fishing skills, but the family was living in the shadow of their former prosperity. Teenage Will left Canal Dover for a year to try to make money elsewhere, and he landed a series of odd jobs in Illinois and then Indiana. It was in Illinois where he'd taken a job working in a lumberyard where he killed his first man. It was on the job during the late shift. He told authorities it was self-defense, and the victim was a stranger no one in town could vouch for. Quantrill was released, but told to leave town. So he moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and found a job as a teacher there. He got good job reviews, but the wages were meager and never enough to help his mom and siblings. She had turned her home into a boarding house to make ends meet, something that really bothered him. He returned to Ohio, but grew restless again. In 1857, when a couple of other men from Dover, Henry Torrey and Harmon Beeson, decided to try their hand at homesteading in Kansas, Quantrill went with them. Cheap land was available for anyone willing to work it, and the men agreed to buy young Will a tract of land of his own in exchange for a couple of months of hard work on theirs. They staked a claim near Stanton, shared a cabin, and cleared and plowed the land. Will wrote home frequently to his mom. She kept all of his letters. They exist to this day. And he expressed his excitement about the future. He encouraged her to sell her home and come west with him. He wrote, We all will be square with the world and able to say our soul is our own. But she never took him up on the offer. His relationship with those other Dover transplants in Kansas soured, and Quantrill learned he wasn't cut out for the life of a farmer. For the next couple of years, he lived a restless life. He joined a U.S. Army expedition to Utah, then tried some backbreaking work in the goldfields of Denver, 
then returned to Kansas and his old career of school teaching. But he also brought back to Kansas new interests and rumors. Out west, he had honed his skills as a gambler and a thief, as well as his proficiency in many weapons, the bowie knife, the sharps rifle, and the Colt pistol. When he returned to Kansas, it was rumored he had left a couple of bodies behind in Utah and Denver. His use of the alias Charles Hart helped confuse efforts to capture him. Quantrill was five foot nine inches, slight, had fair reddish hair, and these cold, pale blue eyes beneath heavy lids that some said gave him an almost Mongol appearance. He forged relationships easily, just not always the good kind. When his rural Kansas school was closed in March of 1860, he hooked up with a band of brigands. By now, Quantrill, who used to be outspoken against slavery, apparently changed his mind by 1860 because in letters home to his mom, he started writing in support of it. Then he started to act on it. One of the schemes he and his friends had was to lure away slaves from the border of Missouri, then capture them and return them to their owners to get the reward money. He also went undercover. He joined a group of Kansas men who were intent upon freeing the slaves of a Missouri plantation owner named Morgan Walker. But on the pretense of scouting ahead, William actually went to the plantation owner and returned with him to ambush the Kansas men, killing three of them. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Quantrill enthusiastically joined the Confederate Army. But he was only regular army for a few weeks. As it turned out, the rules of war weren't aggressive enough for him. He left and formed his own band of guerrillas, a small force at first of about a dozen men, and they began making attacks on Union camps, but also civilian settlements that were outspoken against slavery. His group was called Quantrill's Raiders. The famous Civil War historian James McPherson said this, Without any ties to the South or to slavery, he chose the Confederacy apparently because in Missouri this allowed him to attack all symbols of authority, and he attracted to his gang some of the most psychopathic killers in American history. By the next year, Quantrill's raiders had grown to more than a hundred men, and they became the most feared terrorists along the Kansas-Missouri border. Their number now included those James brothers, as well as the younger brothers and Bloody Bill Anderson, all of whom went on to infamous careers as Wild West outlaws. Together, they robbed the mail to hinder communications, ambushed federal patrols, and attacked boats on the Missouri River. After helping the rebels attack Union troops in Independence, Missouri, Quantrill's raiders were named an official Confederate troop, and he was given the rank of captain. It only emboldened him. In October of 1862, Quantrill's raiders came upon a train carrying Federal supplies, 
they captured the 12 unarmed men on the train and shot them all in the head. A couple of days later, they showed up in Shawnee, Kansas. And here's where our story intersects with the episode we did on Elizabeth Stiles. She was a woman from Ashtabula, Ohio, who became a Civil War spy. Now, when Quantrell stormed into Shawnee, Kansas on October the 17th, 1862, Elizabeth was living there with her husband Jacob and their two daughters. Like Quantrill once had, those former Ohioans had gone to Kansas to take advantage of those homesteading laws that sold land cheap to pioneers. Quantrill took 140 of his brutal bushwhackers into Shawnee. They herded all the residents into the square, and they burned down the town. One account said Quantrill and some of his men then appeared in the Stiles' front yard, where they were met by Jacob Stiles, Elizabeth's husband, and another man. The guerrillas asked what their politics were, and when they replied union, they immediately shot them to death. Years later, Elizabeth Stiles' daughter, Clara, added this to the story. She said after her father was killed, Quantrill approached Elizabeth. He had heard rumors that she was passing information to Union commanders. He backed her into the small kitchen while his men yelled at him to shoot her. Apparently, he looked her up and down and then said, Let her go, boys. She's too pretty to shoot. Thus, Elizabeth Stiles and her daughter Clara escaped that tense moment and went on to become very successful spies. By now, the Union had really set its sights on Quantrill, and what followed were a series of incidents that led to one of the worst atrocities of the Civil War. So here's how it begins. First, in Missouri, Union Major General Henry Halleck issued a new order that guerrillas along the border would be treated as robbers and murderers, not prisoners of war. Quantrill countered by saying his band would no longer take prisoners. All fighting on their side would be to the death. Well, then Brigadier General Thomas Ewing upped the ante even more. Ewing, who, by the way, was from Lancaster, Ohio, was the Union commander of the troops along the Missouri-Kansas border. And he announced that any person directly involved with aiding guerrillas would be jailed. The idea being Quantrill and his men would leave the area if they couldn't get food and shelter. But Quantrill's men all had family in the area and they were eager to aid them. So the Union troops started rounding them all up, mostly women, including moms, sisters, and cousins of the raiders. They were all incarcerated in a three-story building in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. But this building was literally falling apart. Federal troops ignored the signs of peril. Cracks in the walls and ceilings and large amounts of mortar dust on the floor. And on August the 13th, 1863, the whole building came crashing down. Five women were killed and dozens injured severely. One of Quantrill's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, he lost one sister in the collapse 
and another of his sisters lost the use of both of her legs in the crush. The other dead, including the wife of another of Quantrill's raiders, and still others were cousins to other men in his band. Well, when news of this building collapse reached the families of the dead and the injured, they went wild. Crowds arrived at the site, screaming murder at the Union forces. Quantrill and his men fanned the flames, telling everyone Union forces had weakened the structure so it would fall. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Quantrill and his men would get their revenge, but not directly. Instead, they took it out on the town of Lawrence, Kansas. It was a town they had already been planning to attack. It was early the morning of August the 21st, eight days after that building collapse, when Quantrill's raiders, now numbering nearly 500 men, descended on the town. It was known to be a strong anti-slavery community. They started at 5 a.m., and in just four terrible hours, they turned the town of about 3,000 residents into a blazing inferno, They killed 183 civilians and leveled more than 180 homes and businesses. And the ante in this game was still going up because the mass murder of 183 people was going to lead to swift retribution. Four days after the Lawrence Massacre, General Ewing issued General Order Number 11. Civil War buffs know this well. It's probably what Ewing was most famous for. Union troops went into four counties on the Missouri border and forced every single resident into the open prairie. Several thousand of them evicted from their homes, making a ghost town of the counties of Cass, Jackson, Bates, and Vernon. Then, Union troops marched through behind them, burning every building, torching every planted field, and even shooting down livestock to deprive the guerrillas of food, fodder, and support. It was an extreme reaction, and it worked. Without aid, Quantrill and his men had little choice but to retreat to Texas to regroup for the winter but they didn't go quietly. On their way south, before they left the Kansas border, they came across a hundred Union soldiers under the leadership of General James Blunt and caught them by surprise. Quantrill's raiders killed more than 80 of them, with the general and only a handful of his men escaping. For good reason, this whole period is known in the history books 
as Bleeding Kansas. It's amazing the role Ohioans played in this period. I'm not going to get into it here, but the entire period was actually kicked off by yet another Ohioan, abolitionist John Brown. He launched the first attacks on area slaveholders before the war even began. But that's a story for another time. So Quantrill's raiders continued on to Texas, where he checked in on October 26, 1863, with General Henry McCulloch, and he was given orders. McCulloch wanted them to turn their attention to rounding up deserters. The band captured a few, but they killed even more. So McCulloch had to pull them off that duty. They were just way too vicious. He tried sending them down to track Comanches that were responsible for conducting raids in northwest Texas, but the raiders just didn't seem to have the heart for it and didn't succeed at it. Texas, in the end, would live to regret the arrival of William Quantrill. It was during this winter that his lieutenant, Bloody Bill Anderson, broke off and organized some of the men into his own group. So now there were two bands of guerrillas running around the area, and so many Texas residents became the targets of their violence and their raids that regular Confederate forces had to be assigned to protect the civilians. Finally, General McCulloch had enough. As winter gave way to the spring of 1864, he had Quantrill arrested and charged with the murder of a Confederate major. Quantrill wasn't in custody for long. He escaped and was pursued by 300 Confederate troops all the way back to Missouri. It was the end for the Quantrill's raiders as we know them. They continued to break up into smaller units, though each continued their criminal pursuits under men that Quantrill had nurtured into these vicious masterminds, Quantrill himself spent the next few months trying to regain his prestige, but he was just a small-time raider at this point. The Civil War came to an end in April of 1865. A month later, Quantrill and 33 men who remained loyal to him moved into western Kentucky and began doing raids there. There, they were surprised by a team of hired guerrilla hunters who were charged with finding and eliminating high-profile targets. While there was none higher than Quantrill, they found him, and in that battle near Taylorsville, Kentucky, Quantrill was shot through the spine and paralyzed. He lasted nearly a month, but died at the military prison in Louisville on June the 6th, 1865. He was just 27 years old. On the website, Find a Grave, I found this interesting saga of what happened to his remains. You see, Quantrill had made his own burial arrangements with a hospital priest, and he purchased a lot with a marker at nearby St. Mary's Cemetery. But after his death, the priest, fearing vandals, decided not to put a marker out. Some 20 years later, in 1887, Quantrill's mom, Mary, showed up at the cemetery and asked to have his remains. She wanted to take him back to Ohio. Mary, by the way, had never believed the story she read of her son, 
I found articles that same year where she told reporters her son was raised to be an advocate of the Union and a devoted hater of human slavery. He was not a bad boy, she said. Now, when Mary went to Louisville to see if she could get her son's remains, she traveled with a childhood friend of her son's, a newspaper reporter named William W. Scott. But their request to collect her son's bones were refused. The cemetery did agree to open the grave, so it could be proven that Quantrill was interred there. Mary, by the way, was never fully convinced her son was dead. A skull was pulled from the box, and Mary confirmed that a chipped tooth in the skull seemed to match the same one her son had. Well, that night, before the remains could be reinterred, William Scott returned to the cemetery and stole them. He transported the bones back to Dover, where they were placed in the Dover 4th Street Cemetery. Well, not all the bones. As this account went, Scott decided to keep Quantrill's skull and some other choice bones and sell them for his trouble. He was unsuccessful, though, because eventually a skull purported to belonging to William Quantrill found its way to the Dover Museum and was reburied in a separate plot at the cemetery there, though there were some questions as to whether those bones could be proved to be Quantrill's. We're not done with the story of the bones yet, because in the early 1990s, the Sons of Confederate Veterans in Missouri got the Kansas State Historical Society to negotiate with Dover, and that led to three arm bones, two leg bones, and some hair, allegedly all belonging to Quantrill, being reburied at the old Confederate Veterans Home Cemetery in Higginsville, Missouri. As a result, there are now grave markers for William Quantrill in Louisville, Kentucky, Dover, Ohio, and Higginsville, Missouri. But is Quantrill actually in any of them? For more than a century, a shadow has hovered over this story. In August 1907, News articles appeared in U.S. and Canadian newspapers with an interview by a guy named J.E. Duffy. Duffy was a member of the Michigan Cavalry Troop that ambushed Quantrill and his raiders during that final battle in Kentucky. And in 1907, he told reporters he had just met Quantrill on the northern side of Vancouver Island. Duffy said he was there investigating timber rights in the Canadian Territory, and he recognized Quantrill as a man living under the name John Sharp. He spotted the old man on the beach and walked up to him, saying, Is that you, Quantrill, you damned old rascal? He said Sharp admitted it, invited him into his house, and they spent hours discussing his raiding career in Kansas and sharing their counterviews on the war. Duffy is a Union man, Quantrill as a Southern sympathizer. He said Sharp grew angry at any suggestion that women were killed during the Lawrence Massacre. And he even showed him a pistol with the initials WQ carved into the handle. Sharp told him he had been injured in that ambush in Kentucky. He took a bullet and had a bayonet wound, 
But the surgeon had decided he was all but dead and so paid very little attention to him. Turned out, he said, he wasn't as badly hurt as the surgeon thought, and he escaped. He said he rode about 70 miles till he found a sympathizer willing to care for him. And then, once fully recovered, went all the way to South America, where he lived in Chile for a number of years. After that, he returned to the U.S. and worked as a cowboy in Fort Worth, Texas, and then Oregon, before finally moving to British Columbia in the 1890s. There, he worked as a logger, trapper, and finally looking after a defunct coal mine in Coal Harbor on the far northern end of Vancouver Island. Duffy wasn't the only person Sharp had shared this story with. Locals acknowledged that, yeah, when John Sharp was good and drunk, he would boast about being William Quantrill. He'd talk about his days as a gambler, running with Frank and Jesse James, and he'd talk about that ambush in the Kentucky barnyard. But when he was sober, he would deny it all, vehemently. Duffy said the man fit the description of Quantrill and was about the same age. He also saw his scars, including the bayonet and the bullet wound that he said came from that ambush in Kentucky. But if locals knew the story, Duffy's interview is the one that made it public. The story, initially told in Vancouver newspapers, were picked up in Kansas, where Quantrill was the biggest villain in their history. Now, some who knew John Sharp up in Coal Harbor said he was one of Quantrill's raiders, not Quantrill himself, which explained his extensive knowledge of the man and that he simply enjoyed promoting himself when someone wanted to pretend he was Quantrill. But whether or not he was Quantrill, he would pay for the guerrilla leader's sins. A couple of months after those stories made the wire, a couple of men traveled from the U.S. to Vancouver Island. The day they left the island aboard a steamer, Sharp was found severely beaten. A couple of days later, John Sharp died of his wounds. The men believed to have done the deed were never caught, and John Sharp's alleged identity as William Quantrill was obviously never proven. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Corey Breath is a high school Spanish teacher and full-time worship leader in Tip City, Ohio, and still finds time to create original folk, Americana, and pop music. The song we're playing tonight was released last year during the chaos and the heaviness of the pandemic. He said he wrote it to be an anthem of hope, words that could bring joy and comfort to those who are struggling and encouraging them to share their pain. We don't have to suffer alone. We just featured Corey about a month ago, but sharing this song right now seemed appropriate for us as we've been fighting a life or death battle in our own Ohio Mysteries family these past couple of weeks. Thank you to everyone on Facebook who has kept Steve and his family in their prayers. We know they are working. You can also keep up with Corey Breath on Facebook, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
and of course, on his website, CoreyBreathOfficial.com. Well, let's have another listen to Morning Dove by Corey Breath, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Don't go hiding I'm right here What you're in We're in Together When you're buried In the snow No, I'd do anything To change the weather It's okay To not be You can say how you feel In your brokenness You've got my love Sing your sad songs and I'll sing along my morning dove Don't go holding Back the tears You can let them go And I'll let mine go with you When dodging lightning And when you're fighting Just hold on tight Your arms and mine And I swear we'll get through It's okay To not be okay Say how you feel in your brokenness. You've got my love. Sing your sad songs, and I'll sing along my morning dove. My morning dove.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.